Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior, to another episode of Suncast. Thank you, thank you so much for lending me your ears. And of course, the only non-renewable resources that you've got, that is your time. I am so grateful that you've chosen to tune in to today's episode. Hey, if you're new here, I hope you'll get a ton of value out of this episode. I sure did. And I want to thank you personally for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Well, today's entrepreneur has such an interesting background as an energy manager practitioner from his days back at ICF International and GridPoint all the way to today, creating unique, innovative opportunities for change in the energy sector. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Mr. Whit Fulton of Connector. And we get into a very specific topic for those of you in the residential solar space, one that can help save you and your customers hundreds, at times thousands of dollars and can make closing and keeping the sale that much easier. So stick around. And if you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show in Spotify or Apple iTunes, whatever it is that you listen to your podcasts on. You can also subscribe over at mysuncast.com to our newsletter so I can update you every time a new episode is out. I've recently learned that many of you, in fact, wait for those email prompts before you come and check out the new episode. Of course, you could subscribe right in your podcast player. You can also check out more than 390 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And I'm so grateful for all of you who stop by there and connect with me, who click on the member button or who check out what it looks like to work with me. I'm so encouraged by all of you who show up and listen. And I hope that you will get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Warriors, we're going to have a fun conversation today with an entrepreneur who has deep experience in energy analytics. Whit Fulton founded the company that we'll talk about, Connector, to give inventors a place to solve meaningful problems and to ensure that they have an ownership stake in the solutions that they create. I love the way that that is phrased. And we'll talk a bit about his experience and background in renewable energy, but he's honed the skills through analysis, negotiation, product development, uh, and a series of senior managerial roles in energy analytics, consultancy, and clean tech startups. But first, let's welcome Whit Fulton to Suncast. Thanks for being here, Whit. Hey, thank you, Nico. And uh, let me start out with a shout out to all the amazing Suncast podcast fans. You're the most amazing fans on earth. I love you. You're amazing. You're great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, Whit, are you a listener of Suncast? 
I have been recently, ever since uh, it was introduced to me. And um, yeah, no, there's some there's some great great people, much more amazing people than I myself on this uh, on your podcast. And so I'm humbled by being invited to participate. Well, we're glad to have you here. I think that you've got an amazing story. So uh, we'll get into that. Uh, with when you were growing up, was there any particular entrepreneurial bent in your immediate uh, nucleus of a family or extended family? Where did the idea that you were meant to create things or or build businesses come from? Yeah. So my family on both sides, my mother's and my father's side, have been entrepreneurs going back multiple generations and sort of just in, ingrained in sort of how we perceive the universe. Somewhere far back in our family lineage, you know, Robert Fulton, uh, Steamboat, um, my grandfather, Robert Edison Fulton, um, created a series of really interesting inventions, um, one called Skyhook, where it's an un- a plane can pick up people from the ground without touching down. It's featured in a Batman film, things like that. James Bond, Thunderball, invented one of the first like sort of video game type gunnery trainer systems for the Navy back in the 40s. So growing up, he was also always a huge presence in our lives. And so my father is an independent you know, filmmaker, and my grandfather, my mother's side, also, you know, he started companies and actually, you know, sold them to the Japanese companies. And so, the idea of working for other people has never been deeply ingrained in our family. We've always kind of bucked against that. And so, I always knew that I was probably going to work for myself in some way, shape, or form. I'm fascinated by the the conversations that must have been had around the dinner table in your home. Do you remember a particular time in your life where you began to really be inquisitive and start thinking, what do I need to learn from my grandfather and my father so that I can follow in that path? Well, from, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, my cousin Oliver and I, when we were like 11 or 12 or something like that, we were hanging out at my grandfather's house and we found these wooden rods and we decided we were going to turn them into some form of something we can sell to the adults around us on the property. So my grandfather, a whole crew of guys working for him down there. He had his own studio and things like that. So we filed them down, turned them into like little mini totem poles. And we went to my grandfather and said, hey, grandfather, we called him Grandpa, that's his nickname. Would you like to buy these? Because we have made them and they are a thing you can buy. And he took a look, took them out, sort of twisted them around a little bit. He says, what are they for? And we said, well, they're a thing you can buy from us. Don't you like them? I said, well, you need to find a problem. Find a problem that I have and solve that problem for me. And I'll buy that. Whatever it is. Go ahead, just do it. <laughs> it didn't sink in. This uh, this lesson didn't sink until years later. We immediately went down to the studio to steal donuts from the guys because you know finding an actual problem to solve was not for today. Like, you don't want to buy our totem poles? Fine, we're going to steal your donuts. But Still, that's it did many years later, it sunk in like, oh, that's probably a good way to look at the world, even though it's a little bit cliche. No, I really, really love that. Uh, and at an early age, I think about the conversations that I have with my children around the things that they are doing. And they always are talking about, not surprisingly, about how to make money and how to sell things. And and I didn't, I don't feel like I grew up in that environment. Uh, so I very much as an entrepreneur was a late bloomer. But I grew up in a community of of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs, and all of my family practically worked for themselves as farmers and carpenters and house cleaners and many other uh, practical uh, physical things. And do you remember a time where you started thinking, how can I 
best support the the kind of education that might help me solve other people's problems? What what did that thought process lead you to? I mean, you've you went to Reed College and Johns Hopkins. Uh, you studied economics. You've worked in uh, in Asia and worked in other, abroad in other markets. Explain to me sort of the the thinking behind how you began to form what you might now call a career. It was very iterative. The the sort of <laughs> the origin story, as you know, often think about it. You know, came out of a couple things. Uh, one, you know, being from New England and, and growing up in the eighties. Acid rain was a big issue, especially among us, you know, hippy dippy, you know, parents who were all, you know, ecology, you know, oriented at that point. And I remember having, you know, courses about the problems of acid rain and, you know, coal fired power plants and things like that, creating the stuff that was sitting over New England and killing our lakes. And, you know, at some point, like it just got in my head, I think it was junior year of high school. It's like, you know, I would like to solve that problem. Nothing in like a hardcore policy, like, let's go out, like, you know, Greenpeace, Rainbow Warriors kind of stuff. It was like, but no, I'd like to solve that problem. And it just stuck with me. And I forgot about it. And uh, we came back and I forgot about it. And when I went to college, you know, honestly, I majored in political philosophy, like, which is not, you know, there's a, a, a massive screaming market for political philosophers out there. There's just, you know, the, the, I don't think I've ever seen a job opening for that. But that was largely for my own incredibly selfish benefit to establish a really strong understanding of what I thought it meant to be a person, be a good person, and how people work together to solve problems. After that, I went to Japan for a few years. I taught English. And in part, it was just because you know wanted to see how my own thinking about you know what makes what it means to be a moral and and, and a, a human being stacked up over there as well. And I, I learned a lot of things about that about my own idea of you know how these things can come together. And then I came back from there and realized that. If I really wanted to make a difference after traveling through Southeast Asia as well, seeing a lot of development happening there where it was, you know, not a beautiful, clean transition through industrialization, I thought I wanted to get into either sanitation or clean power development. And I wanted to do it in the developing world. Recognized thereafter that I didn't really have the skill set for that, and uh, besides philosophy, and realized I need to go back to grad school in order to, you know, build a foundation for something that could be taken to actually do development work. So that was sort of the transition there. So you're drawn to the concept of development. Do, do you remember your first exposure to renewable energy and how you decided that that's kind of where you were going to focus your career? You know, it's funny. It's sort of always been kind of a part of our background or the background noise in my existence. We had solar hot water panels on the roof as a kid. You know, that was you know, like a lot of people did, which is, I guess, technically my first experience with it. But what's, uh, I think when I worked for the International Institute for Energy Conservation in Bangkok, Thailand, between my first and second years of grad school, was where I was actually introduced to the concept of a megawatt, you know, energy efficiency, demand response. You know, those things are super commonplace now. But the idea that you could do energy management and combined in you know aggregation with clean you know production resources, you could basically manufacture a facsimile of what you're doing with you know normal power generation and consumption now, and that stuck with me. That that concept wanted to do something along those lines really stuck with me as well. And if you put those two things together, sort of like hey, let's get rid of power like the central station coal power plants. And replace it with sort of Amory Levin's soft path, you know, megawatts and small scale as well, really drove me toward that as a solution. So the next question became, 
what's the natural outcome of that in terms of how does it manifest itself in a solution? Well, before we jump down that path, I'm curious, what career path did you not go down, but maybe always thought that you would? I thought that I could be a writer. The, I really, I do enjoy writing. I enjoy, I enjoy humor writing. Dave Barry, you know, philosophical Douglas Adams-esque stuff. That was, those were all my, my favorite authors growing up. I wanted to do that. And I took one summer off from work, actually, to say, look, I'm just going to try writing for a summer. I must have written eight pages. And I realized <laughs> it is <laughs> not the, the career for me. <laughs> yeah, over the course of the summer. Mostly I, say, mostly I sat on the Upper West Side, um, New York City, at, um, I can't remember, it was like, let's say, a Hungarian coffee shop or pastry shop, uh, something like that. And mostly ate pastries and drank coffee and thought about oh the goodness. world. <sighs> and I realized that you know, this is... A career in which I'm sitting alone in a room typing buttons um, is probably not my best and highest use. So, Wit, you came back from Japan and you entered into uh, an energy economics uh, program at John Hopkins University. Explain to me the next you know, seven to 10 years of your career. In particular, how did working at ICF International help you become the kind of person that is, is helpful as an inspiring CEO or entrepreneur uh, in a startup culture? What tools did you learn in that period of time that serve you even to this day as a professional in the renewable energy se- sector? There's really three things I think I take away from ICF, my, my time there. The first, and this is not an advertisement for ICF by any means, but is the genuine passion of the people in that organization for the work they do. Um, I was in the environmental, um, you know, electric power environmental forecasting side, but throughout that organization, whether you're talking about forecasting, you know, environmental markets or gas markets or power plant due diligence, things like that, everyone there really cared deeply about what they did. And there's a real passion for it. And I really enjoyed working with people who weren't just there for a paycheck, but doing something that they knew if they did it well, it would have an impact on their customers and on the world. And so that was, that, that was very gratifying and I wanted to take that with me. The other two things I learned was basically the fundamentals of the economics of a power system. You know, the fuel prices, the, the transmission constraints, the dispatch models, the hourly curves, everything that goes into defining what the economics of how power plants are built and dispatched and invested in, it was an incredible education, and I will be forever thankful for that as well, because I can take that thinking with me throughout analysis of how people are making decisions around you know, what is going to be a viable resource for the future and what the constraints are around it that you have to take into account. And then the last thing is getting really good at Excel. The Excel getting good at Excel spreadsheets is one thing that I said will do for you. You will spend so much time working on cranking out spreadsheets really fast and large data set manipulation, which has served me very well. Well, I'm curious, actually, to that point, you know, we're talking early 2000s into, well, like pretty much most of the aughts you were at ICF. There weren't some of the data analysis tools that exist now that pull data in and give you visual graphics. Uh, So you had to learn all of that data manipulation within inside Excel? Were there other tools that you had access to? The primary tool that ICF used at the time and still uses you know, in, in a more modern iteration was called the um, Integrated Planning Model and IPM, which is originally designed for you know, EPA work doing uh, impact analysis of various different you know, constraints and air, air, air emissions policies. 
you know, nitrogen oxide trading markets, the SO2, the original emissions markets that sort of underlie the idea of a carbon market now that people are looking at more closely in a number of places. And that was actually written in Fortran originally, once upon a time. Um, it's been, you know, ported to a much more modern, you know, you know, code base now. But in order to feed files into it, we had to do all kinds of crazy data manipulations on these giant text files. And it would consume these text files, compile, do a linear optimization of and forecast out the market, what it would look like and what the impacts of these constraints would be to give a sense of what is the impact of a policy? How are people going to respond? How will the market respond most economically effectively? But in order to do that, we had to use a whole slew of different you know, text editors and tricks and tips and things in order to make it work. I, I maybe you know, I feel okay saying this now. Um, I know it's completely modernized and totally re, you know, revised system now. But back in the day, like you know, almost twenty years ago now, it was just like grunt work, and you had to get good at that fast in order to like keep up with your runs. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, you know, it's funny, not to that, that level of detail, but I did interview Ann Choate uh, from ICF, who I'm I'm sure you're probably familiar with. She mentioned the integrated planning model. That was a fantastic. For those who haven't listened to her episode, I'd encourage you to go listen to his episode 347 back in March. But you know, it was so instructive of exactly what you are talking about, the way that this large global consultancy thinks and the kinds of folks that thrive there, also the kinds of skills that you learn there and how they are helpful for modeling these large data sets, but data sets that are, are highly impactful to everyone's daily lives. Like the work that is being done there actually contributes to whether or not bridges fail, whether or not energy systems fail and how to mitigate that risk. So I'm, I'm supremely appreciative of the work that folks at ICF and, and other companies like that uh, contribute. Thank you for summarizing. Uh, it's rare that I get a chance to have a guest who can say, here are the three things I learned from this one company. So I appreciate that level of, uh, of analysis, as it were. As an entrepreneur, I'm curious if there are things that you have identified in your journey that represent what we might consider to be like headaches. What are the things that stand in the way of entrepreneurs standing up a business? And how do you go about uh, resolving those problems? I can really mostly speak to my own experience. Having started a company when I was 37, you know, that's my first company, which is a little, it's not late on average for an entrepreneur in the United States, but it doesn't fit the mold of the typical handful of guys in hoodies working in a garage, you know, in Silicon Valley somewhere. So to, to answer that question, the part of me wants to, wants to say everything, all of the above. Right. It's like, <laughs> when you're an entrepreneur, you have in some ways, you have complete mastery and control over your time and your energy. That's what you have at first. And there's something that's incredibly empowering and thrilling and you know rewarding about that. What you don't have, for the most part, is money. Um, you don't have funders, you don't have investors. By starting a company a little later, you know, obviously I had experience, you know, at a network, at a lot of I knew where a lot of great people were to help support me either like as advisors or early funding, because I did work for a couple of different startups before starting my own, just basically kind of knowing the ropes there. But I think maybe the best thing that I can say about being an entrepreneur that you know may resonate or may be valuable to some of your listeners is that you are simultaneously at all times, you know, incredibly optimistic and you see like 
you you hold that in your head and your heart uh, about where this thing can go. You have to have that vision kind of like that template locked in your head because otherwise, why are you doing this? Like what's, what's, what's going they, And everything feels like you are or can be progressing toward it all the time. Simultaneously, in exactly the same headspace, you hold this feeling that the sky is falling at all times. Like everything is going wrong everything's going bad. Like this little issue over here is a monster issue. This other issue over here. And you have to be comfortable holding those two somewhat paradoxical views simultaneously at all times and not letting either of them get you too high or too low and just kind of stay in the course. That's wise insight right there. I've been in a number of startups and a handful of large companies as well. And I started Suncast as a, a hobby at 36 and kind of fell into running it as a business at 30, uh, at around, around about 38 or 39. So I can totally identify uh, with the idea that starting later in life, you have more experience to bring to the table. You also have some more capital and don't have to go out and raise money. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that many of our colleagues would agree that unless you have a, a, a huge really hardware level, kind of like what you guys are doing, but like a hardware level, the ability to start later in life allows you either to raise money faster or to not need as much money to get started. Yep. So those are the two, those are two benefits that uh, I've been able to uh, take advantage of for sure. Wit, tell me something that perhaps is true for you that few people would agree with you on. I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm a deep, dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore introvert. Like a- Now, not ambivert? I okay, maybe like depending on if like the moon is in you know the right phase and you know the the Jupiter's rising or something like that. Maybe I call myself an ambivert. I do enjoy the performance aspect of engaging either on stage or with people one on one. I love conversations like that are intimate. Like even though this is a podcast, it's a conversation with you, and I'm very comfortable with that. But I run out of steam. Like conferences are like oh, kryptonite yeah. to me. Oh gosh. I like there's just it's just constant bouncing interaction with like a zillion different people, which is fun and engaging, but I am in profoundly exhausted after a conference and I have to come home and like sleep for a day just to process. Yeah. So I'll confess here something I don't think I've talked about on Suncast, ironically, in nearly four hundred. Yeah. In nearly four hundred interviews. You and many others would probably couch me as a, a uh, categorically uh, robust extrovert. And for much of my life, I thought that that was true. The reason I know that I am ambivert leaning towards, and certainly since pandemic, introvert, is as I listen to folks like you who say I'm profoundly hardcore introvert, the things that you identify that for you qualify as introvert just resonate so deeply with me. I have to go off the grid, like Solar Power International this year, I have a two-week vacation planned right after it. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I did. Two week. Because, I mean, I have actually, I have a week of work to like consolidate, integrate, make sure everything's working. And then two weeks off grid, like, don't talk to me. I am done. I I can't function. And I remember after SPI 2019, uh, going to hang out with my friend Lisa and, and her boss, and we're sitting having a beer and they were like, hey, dude, where are you? And I'm like, I'm anywhere but here. I'm completely <laughs> wiped. I've, I had spent three days talking to, you know, like hundreds of people. And, uh, and it's one of those moments where it simultaneously can fill you and you're giving 
of an energy that folks perceive is coming from a place of wanting to be there, but it's almost like for me, I'm a showman. Like I was born on the stage and I know how to show up in much the same way that for you being on a stage represents a safe box, right? It's a place where they are there. I'm here. I may as well be on a Zoom call with these people, right? And uh, I resonate with that because, you know, I find that as a leader of a company, uh, it's often true that people want more of you and your time than you can give. How do you manage, especially as an introvert, the dichotomy that you need to be simultaneously, um, I'm going to borrow some of your language here, you need to be simultaneously giving available, alert, energetic, because people feed off of your energy, while at the same time, you have to uh, be able to preserve energy for the things that matter. I really appreciate that question. I I will come back and answer it in just a moment. I wanted to riff off very briefly on what you talked about. And I, I recognized one thing that the reason the conferences are so exhausting is, like you said, you're sort of in show mode, you're in present mode, especially if you're standing in front of your booth and you're talking to customers and potential partners about what you do and how you do it. When you do a pitch to a customer, to a, a VC or to anybody, you go into, I sort of describe it as border calling mode. Like, you can be relaxed and pitching, but somewhere, either the amygdala or some other part of your brain is super lit up and you are hyper-processing consciously or subconsciously body language, questions, a bat of an eyelid, like, and continuously iterating really aggressively on that stuff, being ready to field a question from left field, being ready to like, and you do that for three or four days in a row. And like, it is incredibly sapping. Like, other people I know can just sink and settle into that and just be like, it's nothing, whatever it is. For me, I'm still at that point where I have that show production mode where I'm in. And it just, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's exciting and, and exhilarating, but also exhausting. It is a hard thing that you have to invent and reinvent every day. Some people are amazing at that. I am not. I still run to the the beat and the vicissitudes of my own energy i will sprint towards something i will aggressively do it i'll think about it i'll act and then uh, something else will happen a new data point will come in from left field and i'll you know move toward that i'll think about it and i'll process it and i'll get it into the great matrix of processing you know you have this you have this mental model built up about your company and where it sits in the world and where how the world is changing and how your company is changing with different people and skill sets as they're growing and the opportunities are shifting because we are in a rapidly shifting environment as well. D- distributed energy resources, every day there is a new invention, a new policy, a new technology, a new piece of the puzzle that comes to, into play that has to be sort of refactored into how you think about where you sit in the universe. And it takes tons of bandwidth, but when you're in a hardware company in a hardware world where your development cycles are fairly long, it's not like you can just do A/B testing on a software platform and just you know, push a new update. This is like you got to plan ahead, you know, you know, twelve to thirty-six months as far as your you know development plan and manufacturing. And my biggest challenge is my my reach will always exceed my grasp. There's always something else that I can see that we can do and somewhere we can go and something better we can do. We can do this thing better. And there's a new opportunity opening up here. And making sure 
that first of all that I keep those own that my own big visionary pieces in check in such a way that here's the big picture up here here are the steps to get there here's how we'll do it in a stepwise function which allows my team to move along with me instead of being you know, yanked around that's that's one major thing and the second thing to do to sort of address that issue is that I found is not having to engage with my team all the time it is engaging with them in a healthy way and then trusting them that they are incredibly talented people and they have the skill sets they need to get it done so long as they're given clarity about the that step function path and those are the two things that I work on you know that I work on myself on all the time how do i make sure that the vision is executable and how do i make sure that my team has the clarity they need so they can take care take advantage of their own superpowers because they're amazing people do you have a personal philosophy around how you manage your calendar as the CEO. Uh, some folks have, you know, deep work time and time blocking. Do you, have you, have you in, sort of internalized and put on in a calendar function, how you organize the way that you get through the things you need to get through? Yeah, there's, there's a general philosophy, but there's a lot of experimentation too within the structure of that philosophy. The general philosophy is First and foremost, my most productive hours are my morning hours for my own like wit gets stuff done work time. I try to keep myself clear of meetings at least until 10 o'clock in the morning, every morning. I also try to keep at least one day a week where it's more or less clear for deep work, like deep thinking, go out and mow the lawn and think about some issue, like deep set aside, non-interaction work. That's Wednesday is typically my day for that, where I don't you know, have as much interaction. The remaining pieces of the puzzle are really around making sure that the meeting time and the interaction time that I do have is increasingly built around structure and replicability. Once upon a time, for the longest time, it was very much, okay, here's a meeting about this account. What's happening? What are the issues? How do we get them done? It's sort of just on a rolling basis without as much structure as far as like, here's our project plan. Here's like, it's really a maturation function of a company. I'm a classic small startup guy that can wear 15 hats, but is really bad at wearing one hat. So I'm a doer, not so much a manager. And our company is rapidly evolving toward that manager-oriented company rather than a whole bunch of doers, because we have a lot of great doers. And it has been a really great process to get into that replicability of you know, really best practices as far as managing projects and keeping the priorities straight. I'm sure my board's going to listen to this if they do. And they're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe he's saying these things about a company. Oh. But the truth of the matter is this is, this is what our company looks like. And uh, which is not to say I don't believe massively in the things we're doing and our ability to execute. There are a lot of tools that folks use, uh, you know, like entrepreneur operating system and, and even agile uh, as a, yeah, you got traction right there in front of you. I yeah, where it's like, one of my board members said, you have to read this book. And he was right. It's a great book. Well, it's a great book. Uh, my question is, have you, how have you started to integrate traction into the business process then? Well, we only, I've only adopted it in like the last month or so. Um, uh, you really started you know, putting pieces in place. But honestly, one of the biggest ones is really the first and foremost we looked at is people and people in organization, making sure that we are structured in such a way to take advantage of the skill sets we have in-house already, and then identify where the gaps are to you know, backfill. And it, that dovetails with what I said earlier about you know, we having a lot of amazing doers, like people who are really good at just rolling up their sleeves and getting things done because they're super smart and they're super, super capable. But that has come at the expense of people who are 
historically not awesome at managing, you know, like you know, creating replicable workflow patterns that their dark reports can work on. We're getting better at it for sure, but we are going to be investing more heavily in that managerial structure. And that's the sort of the, uh, the integrator role with from the traction book. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a bit about what this kick-ass team of doers is trying to accomplish. What are you doing differently in the marketplace as an entrepreneur, startup, guy, what gap did you see and what problem are you solving right now? Yeah. So when I sort of transitioned out of ICF, I recognized I could either go into large scale renewable development, like, you know, you know, helping build wind power plants, you know, other things that were a little more traditional investments. And it wasn't as interesting to me. You know, I'm like, I am, like I said, I'm very selfish in terms of like working on things that I'm interested in. And the real action, so to speak, for me was at the grid edge. I thought what's happening the small scale that could be repli- re- replicated you know, massively across the United States and across the world to transform the balancing act between central station and you know, grid edge, there's a lot of value in that. And that was just such an exciting place to be because you're touching on consumer electronics, you're touching on behavior, you're touching on you know, electric vehicles, you're touching all this, this rapidly transforming space, which is just awesome. And so I went to work for a company called Gridpoint that was making a, a magic all-in-one box with batteries and EV integration and demand response and solar. And the, the vision for the company was awesome. And I was totally bought in and I, I still totally bought in. But the, one of the big challenges was the cost points for that appliance effectively just weren't there for the market yet. You know, it was, it was much more than we wanted it to be. And so one of the biggest challenges around that was the installation cost. The physical cost of getting that thing inside a house and wiring it into the service panel and putting in a transfer backup switch, it doubled or tripled the total cost of the product. And so my job was to work with uh, utilities, sort of DR business application models. Like, what are the business models utilities can build up around this grid edge stuff in their relationship with their customers? And I saw meters change out one day and I realized that it's just a big socket. And the time that meter, the you know normal bubble meter used on the side of every house, like you plug it into the socket. If you pull that off, there's four prongs on there, just like or four jaws, which are just a giant socket you can plug things into. And I said, why can't we use that? That was the fundamental thought. Like, why can we not use that to connect this incredibly powerful, capable, and increasingly sophisticated technology and just 10 minutes of install and walk away? And that was the genesis of the thought around the connector, you know, our meter collar adapters, which is sort of the technical term. It's incredibly boring, but that's what they're called. That stewed in my head for a couple of years as I worked for an energy efficiency and building modeling startup company um, that did some really great stuff around, you know, whole house, you know, the upgrades for utility programs. But it was always percolating there. And then one day I saw the Department of Energy's Sunshot program had a solicitation out saying, hey, we're looking for your soft cost reduction ideas. I was like, now's a great time to do that. So I, I submitted an application, um, got some funding to create the first version of the product, which we called, at that time it was called the Solar Socket, but there's like 50 other things in the market called Solar Socket. So we figured that's kind of a crowded space. Let's change the name. And then, which eventually became the Connector, Connect DER, which is you know the idea that you can plug in an EV or an energy storage system or solar PV at the customer's meter and just eliminate all of those wiring costs or service panel upgrades, all those kinds of things, and just make it appliance size effectively 
the product because you you can't get mass adoption until in in my mind from customers until they can connect these things the same way they connect a dishwasher or a dryer. You know, they know how to plug things in, and that's where we need to go. Is this the kind of thing that a, a consumer can plug in, or it still requires a, an electrician? At this point, it still requires an electrician. However, if we have our druthers, and you know, we may or may not, but we have a long-term vision for this thing, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, is that instead of just having a collar adapter, which sits between the meter and the meter socket, we would have something which we call the junction meter, which basically is a meter with a big plug on it. And in that world, you know, any utility that's like a Con Ed or a Duke Energy or, a, you know, PG&E, what have you, would have this type of meter on every home in their service territory. And that meter would effectively have a white list of devices you can plug into it because it has both a power and a data interface on it or a power and communications module. So Joe Homeowner could go to Home Depot or, you know, could bring home an EV charger or whatever, plug it in there, and the utility will automatically reach out and register that device if it's on a white list of devices that it can talk to. And it will say, oh, I see you have an EV charger. I'm going to automatically sign you up for this special EV charging rate. And the on your next bill to show up as, you know, when you charge your, charge your EV charger, there you go. Same thing for solar or energy storage. It's kind of the idea of uh, like pre-installed drivers for USB devices. Very much so. In fact, the original <laughs> the original idea when we first put the patent in was called DGUSB. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. No, you, you, you got it in one. You know, I believe project developers really are the unsung heroes of the energy sector. And it's high time. We had our own project management software built for us, by us. Email, Dropbox, MS Project, you know, they might help you get by, but truly in a post-COVID-19 world, we need to move faster online. With decades of experience moving projects from idea to operation, our friends at Enion know firsthand just how painful it can be relying on generalist software to get projects over the line. So I'd like to encourage you to give Enion Project Manager a try for free today. Enjoy enhanced security and cooperation with your entire team. Centralize your tasks, teams, files, and financials all in one secure place. Deliver more projects fast and at a lower cost. Go sign up today for free at www.enian.co. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780. I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know, Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you and I hope to see you there. And I hope that you'll text me. That number again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. 
I want to come back to this idea of uh, what I think will resonate for most folks who understand how the residential solar um, sort of pain points stack up. You mentioned that this effectively can avoid uh, what we refer to as an MP or a main panel upgrade or service panel upgrade. I don't want to geek out too much for folks that are unfamiliar, but what's the pain point around a main panel upgrade? How much does it usually cost? How often is it required? Uh, You know, how, how does this impact the overall growth of We'll, we'll call it solar right now, but how does it impact the growth of renewables on the grid? Yeah, and it impacts electric vehicles and you know energy storage as well. These are all these are all all one. But at the end of the day, it's actually it's a pretty simple concept. If you want to put solar power or any big device on your house, it can be a the HVAC system, an air conditioner, whatever whatever you have it. There's a bunch of circuit breakers that sit in a box. They're somewhere either on the side of your house, in your garage, or in your basement, and that's called the service panel. And the service panel is basically the thing that you know, governs how much power you can pull or push around inside your house. And in many cases, that service panel, if you want to put solar on there, it doesn't either have a slot for the circuit breaker or doesn't have enough you know, size to handle the amperage you know, from a new device, you know, just basically the power. So one in five, depending on the market or the area, the region, sometimes as much as one in two. Um, if you're in a place that has lots of old, smaller services, will require a service panel upgrade in order to install solar. And that service panel upgrade will cost you, on average, around $3,000. So that's $3,000 of additional cost on top of your solar system cost. And that can be a deal breaker for a lot of folks. There's like, oh, nope, forget it. I mean, I'd like to, but that's, yeah, I'm not spending three grand mm-hmm. just to do this piece of the puzzle here. And so, what we did with using our little meter collar adapter is we just provided a place to plug in that power on the outside of the house where your meter is and never have to touch the service panel. So we can avoid all of that cost of service panel upgrades because we're not impacting the service draw at all. It's like a plug and play equivalent of a line side tap. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, line side tap for those people. I guess you, you probably have a pretty, uh, pretty experienced um, listener base here. Yeah, most people will understand at least what a line side tap is, but if they don't, it's the equivalent of like tying straight into the service line of the house. Um, that's or correct. That's of exactly a distribution it. grid for that matter. But this, I mean, a line side tap is something that explicitly requires a licensed electrician and not just anyone. It's one that actually knows what they're doing because you can kill yourself. I mean, it's a dangerous proposition, which is why a service panel upgrade makes more sense for most homes. <laughs> and it's also yeah. harder to get permitted. It takes longer, blah, blah, blah. How long does it take, uh, for example, to get... So I want to talk about two costs because I'm, I'm like kind of geeking out a little bit on this technology right now. Feel um, free. That's, that's, so what, that's what we're here for. How long does it usually take to schedule a service panel upgrade in the territories where you guys are currently rolled out? Well, I mean... Some places, you know, that, it can be it can be a week or two, or it's really, you know, it's just not 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 a problem at all. And it's typically over the counter. It's easy for electricians to get it done. Exactly. It's just a, it's a, it is a known thing to do. It's just there's a cost point associated with. It. That's just what it is. In some older homes, also the panel is recessed inside like a wall, and they have to rip it out of the wall there, and then you have to do patching and painting afterward. It's like there's a lot of extra cost involved in it too. So being able to avoid all of that altogether is is a big benefit that we're driving. But you know, on the on the longer end, you've got you know places in California where it's like a six month wait to get a service panel upgrade scheduled and approved, just because you people are behind. You know, it's like there's in some cases you got have to disconnect at the you know, at the weatherhead, which like up the the pole kind of thing. Utilities a lot of time just you know can't keep up, especially with demand in places where solar 
and other DERs are growing so fast. So, so by comparison, a connector, what do you call it? Not the solar socket, you call it something else now? A meter collar adapter. That's the technical term for adapter, what it is. The MCA. Yeah. In contrast, a solar install crew could come in and while installing the solar array, install a meter collar adapter because it was bundled into the price of the deal and it's in and out in the same day. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's how we do it in Vermont. Like Green Mountain uh, Power, okay. you know, we're just phenomenal partners from this, from the get-go. They, they, they long, early on said, look, you know, distributed generation is not our enemy. We, you know, ultimately we're going to have to work through what net energy metering looks like, you know, over time because that doesn't, doesn't scale infinitely. But in general, you know, there's a lot of peak coincidence between solar and, um, and peak demand. And if you get buy through, if they can offset, you know, their outside state power purchases with, you know, locally produced energy, you know, they, it can work out economically for them. So they were awesome. They actually provided the connector meter collar adapter as a service that you, the installers would buy it from them. And we would end up drop shipping the product directly to the installer. They'd install it along with their, their job. And then the GMP service tech would come through at the end, set the net meter, you know, make sure the production meter is all good and make sure the system checks out and they're good. So it's a requirement for, for Green Mountain Power projects? No, no, not a requirement of any means. So it's, okay. and that's, that's, that actually should get back to you um, philosophically a little bit about how we feel um, about you know, the value that our product, product adds or any product anywhere. It should never be a mandate if we have our druthers. Like it should always be an option for the market to adopt it because we'd only want people to adopt it on jobs that make economic sense for them. It's otherwise it's a brittle model. It's just it's crappy. You know you don't want to do that. And so most utilities we work with will author, offer it programmatically. Like Con Ed is basically says, look, you want a connector? Check this box in your application. We'll roll a truck and install it for you, and you can come in and tie in afterward. And so that's, that's, that's an awesome model. But the one that's easiest is like the Vermont style thing, where basically now installers like Sunrun buys them directly from us, you know, the other big companies buy directly from us, but everyone else goes to like CED, Green Tech or other distributors up there and buys them over the counter. So it's all, it's pretty easy. That's pretty cool. Now, for, in comparison with a $3,000 service panel upgrade, this device is meant to help basically avoid and replace that. What's the device cost? MSRP is about 400. That's like the standard off the shelf one. Yeah, exactly. Standard off the shelf. You know, someone picks up onesie, twosie from CD. Yeah, about $400. $400. That's a tenth the cost. Yeah, cl- close to it. Bear in mind, we, we've always tried to price this in such a way. Like we, we, don't, we don't price it at $2,500. So there's like a little bit of savings. We've priced it in such a way that we are trying to get it as low as humanly possible. You know, we'd like to get it yeah. lower than that. And someday we probably will um, since we get like larger scale. But our ideal is that for people to use this on every install, you know, it just becomes part of their standard job. And then the, um, I want to get into like, there's another level, right? That's kind of twice as much for, uh, is it a smart collar? Yeah, we, uh, okay. up until so recently. Into we, the smart collar, yeah. Stop, yeah, stop, I wanna, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, I want to, I want to touch on something really quick for dear listener. If you aren't, like, if this isn't clicked for you yet, then probably you aren't out knocking doors selling solar projects uh, or you aren't on the install crew, constantly plagued with main panel upgrades. So I want to connect a couple of dots on what we just said that fundamentally, if I were knocking doors, would change my business model. At $400, okay, so the num- one of the number one reasons why right now projects get high cancel rates is either like crappy snake oil salesmen that oversell the project or 
da-da, a main panel service upgrade was discovered on the site visit, which typically in today's sales model, not when you and I started with, but today's sales model, contracts are signed before they even will do a site survey sometimes. And so they'll go out and do a site survey and they'll realize, oh, our silly sales rep didn't realize that we need a service panel upgrade. This is going to cost 3K. And the homeowner says, no, forget it. This feels like a bait and switch. Like, I don't, this doesn't feel good. I'm not going to spend another $3,000. Project dies. So I would say I'm going to pull this one out of the air here, but it's probably in the 30 to 50% range of projects that cancel have to do with these kind of gotchas that like show up in the site survey. And the main panel upgrade is the one that is generally the most expensive and what I just heard you say is that if I'm a smart salesperson and I know what to look for, I can just roll $400 line item into my project and give a sense of confidence that it's going to happen and I'm not going to have any gotchas. Like maybe you don't know, maybe you're on the fence about whether or not this is a service panel upgrade. Maybe you don't even care. Maybe you just want to help your homeowner by saying, look, we're going to include this product that is a next generation grid edge product that... Uh, will ensure that we don't have any unforeseen circumstance that prevents you from being able to go solar. Like that sounds like a compelling value proposition for under a grand. You hit the nail on the head. A lot of the times the feedback we get from a lot of installers who use the product, they also, you know, for that, that kitchen table conversation, or at least the front door conversation now, they can also say, oh, at least in, you know, Northeast and sort of, you know, East Coast markets where, the service panel is often on the inside of the house, whereas the meter is on the outside of the house. They could say, look, we can do this entire installation job without ever coming inside your house. Outside. Wow. Um, you wow. Know, so like I just thought about that. Yeah, you know, we can we can just we can roll up. Um you'll come home from work one day or after you get in groceries, system will be there and you know, a couple of weeks later you can get commissioned and turn on. But um no more going inside, you know, kicking, you know, you know, wiring, things like that. For logistics sake, it's pretty compelling in its own right. So remembering that you were a data analyst and modeling expert at ICF, help me understand how this contributes to the broader category of smart home. And especially in a world where we've got Lumen and Span and Coben systems that are all attacking the very device that you're bypassing, the, the service panel. It's funny, taking to the reference of the, the energy analyst side of the, of the equation, the the funny thing about this is it's almost like the least energy analysty thing I've ever done. It's like we've made a box you can plug stuff into, and that's and there's a lot of you know magic tips and tricks inside there to work with storage or energy or like vehicles too. But at the end of the day, the idea is to take advantage of a universal infrastructure that's on every single house in the United States, and in doing so, creating you know, making it into an appliance and. That has the benefit of being incredibly simple and plug and play incredibly easy. There's no ripping wires out. There's no putting smarts and stuff like that inside the house. It's just, that's our fundamental value proposition is, is incredibly low cost connectivity. Now, talking about the, the smart version of our collar, doing smart things like that, we just recognize that you can embed metering, communications, controls inside that collar as well for other sort of grid facing and sort of bridge applications between grid operations and those, you know, DERs, like making solar do what you want to make it work better with the grid, you know, the, the, to put it into, you know, really basic terms. Um, at the same time, because we are so closely tied to like where the DER comes together and the grid comes together, the home loads come together, we try to see what we can do to optimize value there. And of necessity means that we are not doing service panel level stuff like Span and all the other guys like Schneider Electric who have like these amazingly beautiful customer products. 
they're solving a fundamental problem of how do you tie together solar output, EV consumption, home loads into an integrated bundle, which is a very powerful proposition. One of the challenges there, however, is obviously is just the, the fundamental cost point. And so we're attacking a different problem. We're attacking this, the physical connectivity of basic DER assets. And then from there, we can layer on some of our values around you know, managing from the grid relationship. But it is, it's, it's sort of apples and oranges a little bit. They're both about connecting devices, but they're much more focused on customer experience and value add for a broader set of things than just connecting your solar. Whereas we're focused on eliminating that, just driving that cost down and making an appliance. There's a couple of things here. So before I forget it, one of the values that seems apparent to me is that the utility can now in real time do like over the air updates on your, because they simply detect that or even can offer you a service that you didn't even know you qualify for because they detect that you have certain loads through the collar adapter. You had mentioned, for example, if a utility wants to do an EV subscription rate program, uh, explain what that might look like within enabled by your product. And that's, you know, and honestly, that's, we can do it with the monitoring and the, the data communications, and all that stuff, that's sort of a value add, but you don't need it. And this is the beauty of what we're doing. Utilities, generally speaking, are extremely interested in uh, the adoption of electric vehicles, both from a perspective of it rebuilds load. You know, you're, you're selling more kilowatt hours, so in their fundamental business model, it's a good thing. At the same time, they're also very concerned about how what dropping, you know, what effectively is like almost another house onto the grid every time you buy an EV and they start plugging it in, how they're going to manage those floating loads, both at the home and they go out in the wild and charge somewhere else on the grid. Like that's a major, major conceptual thing they've never had to deal with before. So yes, they love the idea of EVs. No, they don't love the idea of you know, these wildly unmanaged loads floating around and like creating potential pockets of new demand that didn't exist before that they can't really manage. What they love the most is the idea of managed load. If you can build managed load for utility, you've got something that is extraordinarily powerful because what you are doing is you are both giving them what they want in terms of, hey, here's more kilowatt hours for us to sell. And at the same time, giving them a resource that can be used not to you know, not only not harm the grid, but also to help enhance, you know, grid stability. As a result, utilities are generally very much aligned with the idea of getting more EVs and EV chargers out there. However, so what we do, and let's let's talk about what kind of the magic of, of our adapter is. You have what is called a behind the meter connection. And that's sort of classic sort of, when you connect to your service panel or your solar or your EVs, that's all behind the meter because you are literally consuming behind where the meter is metering your power from the grid. We also have the option in our collar to have a front of meter connection. So we do that for utilities with rent the rooftop programs where you know, APS and TEP went out and put you know, you know, 6,000 know, solar systems on rooftops all throughout Arizona and you connected that all front of meter using our collars. So we recognize that if the utility wants to incent or entice people to get EV chargers at home and you know connect EV chargers there, what they can do with our product is plug it in. You know, just just like uh, you plug an EV charger into ours, and it's good to go. And by connecting front of meter, they can offer the customer a sort of all you can eat subscription program. 
you know, 40 bucks a month, 30 bucks a month, whatever the number is. And you basically have a gas station at your house now where you can charge on an unlimited basis without worrying about, you know, what the, what the overall impact of your bill is going to be. It's just flat rate. The consumer uh, model for telephones and television and... Yeah, exactly. So you know, same, same thing. It's all you can eat charging program so long as it's for this specific application, which is EV charging. And by using our caller, they don't have to do any changes in their metering back office system. They don't need to add a new meter in. All they need to do is say, Joe Customer, sign up for this program. They'll roll a truck. They'll plug it in, walk away. Customer doesn't have to pay anything for an EV charger. Like that's all provided by the utility and the connection is, is as well. So the charger is then put front of meter. Exactly. The charger is then front of the meter as well. Yeah. So the charger is now front of meter. So when you're charging your car, your meter isn't going to run. It's not being, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't consume at all. And so. Are you able to then like rent it out to your neighbors? You conceptually could, although this is why in some cases utilities want to make sure that we do have a data monitoring component in there. I would totally put a sign on my front yard. I'd be like, I'd I'd sign my whole neighbor. I would, no, not free power. I would sign my whole neighborhood up for like a $20 a month. Free the program. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's that right. is pretty funny. Um, oh God, although, that sounds awesome. At the same time, you can also, uh, it can be structured in such a way that even if you were charging continuously, you can still make it come out in the black for the utility, you know, because they're selling, they're still selling power at wholesale rates effectively or buying it wholesale and selling it down to you, you know, with the markup through the distribution system. Gosh, that's really cool. I mean, that's a, that is so creative. I wouldn't have uh, guessed. So I have a, a bunch of questions I potentially could ask you. I'm going to have to- Hopefully I have a bunch of answers. Going to have to filter through many of them. Uh, I want to get to how you funded it and uh, the kind of culture that you put in place. So first and foremost, you've been around uh, for a decade. How did you financially make that work before? Like it's a hardware product after all. And we've got listeners that are hardware companies that are trying to figure out how- to get their MVP, they're trying to get product market fit and they're having to go raise you know, five, 10, 20, 15 million rounds to get this hardware into the world. Uh, you know, If you're comfortable with it, I'd love to know how many rounds you've raised, if you've raised capital, how much you've raised, if you're, if you're uh, willing to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, we, we did a series, it was our second priced round, so we called it a series B, and this was back in December of 2019. And uh, we, to date, we've raised, uh, I want to say 12 million, um, not including, you know, you know non-diluted grants from Elemental Accelerator and Sunshot Program for DOE, things like that. But if you want to check the actual number on that, feel free to go over to Crunchbase. It's, uh, it's all there. I'll probably go after oh, and say, cool. hey, wait, what if the number is? Hardware's a challenge. And having never done hardware before, at least, you know, not directly myself as my own company. Yeah, it does require, you know, a lot of startup costs, especially if you're doing this, like semi-industrial stuff. If you're just doing like, you know, a little, you know, Arduino or BeagleBone type, you know, processor in a box, and your real secret sauce there is, um, is firmware, that's a different story. I mean, even then, you still have to deal with supply chain for tens of thousands of units and you know process stuff like that. For us, a lot of what we do, even though it's not high industrial, it's still you know 200 amp you know flow through and bus bar industrial UL listed stuff. Is thick, you know you kill you kill someone if someone sticks their finger in the meter socket. So we have to be very very careful um, in terms of making sure we have UL listing, making sure with you know, ANSI certification, you know FCC, NEC, all the pieces of the puzzle that. Give us the the imprimatur of safety and you know the credential of, of quality. So those things take time and money. But the good news here for all the people out there who do want to do something in the hardware space or in the clean tech space in general 
is it's really twofold. One, there are special buckets of money out there for you that, yeah, you're not going to go to a VC most likely and compete with you know Silicon Valley software startups for you know the because it's you're not going to scale the same way. You you don't have the same you know the multiplier effect payout. You're solving a problem in the world and. However, there are those people, either both in, either investors like Eliminate, Social Venture, Real Brothers of Prime Coalition. There's a lot of buckets of money out there that are dedicated and carved out to solving genuine climate-related issues or clean tech issues. And they will they'll be more biased toward funding you and supporting your mission because they're mission-driven, mission-aligned. The second piece of the puzzle is never fail to look at US government federal money. SBIR DOE, CETO grants. Um, there's a lot of great buckets of money reserved just for you. And I should put out a plug for, obviously, Elemental Accelerator in Hawaii and California. Um, we were incredibly fortunate to be accepted to cohort two, I think. You know, these days, that's it is a you know it's it's much more competitive program. But even back then, like it was it was really you know very validating, um, and they've been amazing to work with. But I did want to put um, a, a plug in for the American Made Solar Challenge. It's I was going to if you didn't. <laughs> pro, yeah, program they run now. Um, we are actually a connector in that program, but they have uh, they've got really great awards prizes for like beginning to start your idea on the conveyor belt to get proof of concept out before you have to like lay out any shell out any of your own money to make it happen. Yeah, and we're not talking small money either. Yeah, you know, we covered in 2019 the first awardees uh, being Solar Invention, and I can't think of the company the company out of uh, Portland that won the the other. And collectively, it's over a million dollars in prize money. I mean, it's significant, especially for the uh, the finalists that win. Uh, it's significant. It's over. It's you know half, roughly half a million, maybe a little more. You can go back and listen to those episodes from early 2020 when we replayed those from from the podcast lounge. If you want to know more about it, um, we're also connectors for American Made Solar Challenge, and happy to help folks understand that more, like what that program looks like. It's not. It's all. It's 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 harder now than it was then, just like Elemental, to get in, so to speak, and get cash. But if you've got a great idea, and um, and in particular, if it's hardware-focused, there are great government programs, to your point, that are there waiting for your smart idea to fund it. When we talked earlier, you talked to me about three foundational principles that you uh, memorialized sort of as starting this company. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh and I'm going to get back to reach exceeding grasp again because I have a vision for where I want us to go and what I want us to be. I can make no claims as to whether or not we've achieved it, even any small modicum. I love our staff and uh, I feel like we've done a good job of hiring wonderful people. But I just want to say, in case any of our staff is listening, be like, what is he talking about? This guy, <laughs> this has nothing to do with how our company operates. This is where we want to go and this is what we want to be. So, I started Connector, which at the time was actually called Infinite Invention, and the idea was we yeah, wanted to, it actually. Crunchbase told me that. Yeah, we we wanted to be a uh, almost like a collective of inventors that shared equity in each other's companies. Um, oh wow! I still love that idea, and it's sort of like a pooling of risk and also reward in a lot of ways, and that we would be able to you know share skill sets and values across this you know sort of collective. Connector or the solar socket was, was the first idea or the first thing I wanted to scale under that and then move on to the next thing, which is like a water thing and you know something else in the sort of the, the real world problems, like with beautiful inventions solution. That was the idea. Married up to that idea 
So that's that's where you get the idea where you have inventors and they're being you know uh, rewarded for their contribution to the 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 solution. At the same time, and other people have done this and have focused on this and done it far better than we have so far. But that was the vision. The other piece of the puzzle was as far as a company culture. I wanted to really focus on meaningful work. There's a lot. <laughs> I can't remember what the, uh, I th- I, there's, there's a guy who wrote a, b- a book, I think it's called Shit Jobs. Just means there's a lot of jobs out there that don't inherently add any value beyond either the company making money or you getting paid. And we wanted to move beyond that concept. And it, this is sort of triple bottom line stuff. It's so, you know social justice. There's all those elements inherent in it, but we boiled it down this way. One, everyone should have a meaningful stake in the work they produce. So therefore, there's there's you know, economic reward. You work hard, you get you get paid, and you see upside in the company. So you have a you know solid equity grant in the company. Two, everyone should have the opportunity for growth within the company. Skill sets, you know, learning, knowledge, understanding. So making sure that there's a growth path within the company for people to learn and do new things. And three, people should recognize that their work, if done well, has value beyond their own personal and beyond the company's gratification. Something outside our walls should have been improved in some significant way as a result of what we do. And those are the three principles by which I try to run the company. Can't say I always succeed, but that's that's inherent in the culture. Well, thank you for sharing that for sure. That That's super helpful. I think that a lot of times I run into founders who have run been running so fast and hard at a problem they want to solve. And they are not focused on the personnel piece of it. They'll almost just kind of take whoever wants to join them on the journey and go through that painful process. I think that entrepreneurs like yourself who can buck the uh, statistics of most companies not making it past three years for a decade to put a product out in the world that is, um, that is creating immense value, I have to believe through my own experience that it also ties back to the culture around innovation and invention, the culture of intentionality from the very beginning that you you told me in uh, one of our previous calls that you aspire to have a company that births other births other companies, right? Yeah. Five years from now, yeah, somebody who's no, an employee. <laughs> go ahead. That's funny. In, in my ideal world, people will leave Connector and they'll go start, they'll take, do it, make a spin or an iteration of the culture in their own way and yeah. plant that seed and that will replicate in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And then you can reinvest in those employees in that way. But yeah. I, would, I have great dreams of exiting this company, yeah. not because, yeah. you know, I want to make a ton of money. I mean, that'd be nice, of course, but the yeah. it's that I'll have the wherewithal to seed a bunch of other things like this, which would be pretty freaking cool. When you look back on your career uh, thus far, are there particular mentors or influences that gave you insight on how to how to do this, how to get it right? I look back and there's, there's, uh, there's those two anecdotes here. One is at the CEOs I've worked with previously, your previous startups. And under, having now been in those shoes myself for a while, understanding far better the challenges that they faced. Because at the time, like, honestly, I would be like, you know, these guys are really good at certain things, but yeah, you know, there's, you know I don't really want to you know, they're, they're not, they're not all that I can do this better, whatever. And now that I've had to do it myself, I understand all the pressures and the variety of things that they're under that have gone through. So what I wanted to say uh, is that in some ways I learned what not to do in some cases from them, but that's not entirely fair because I'm sure someone from my company or someone's from my company 
are going to go on and start their own company and be like, yeah, working with it, I learned what not to do. So that's, that's uh, it's absolutely you know, part of the great, you know, the growth cycle. You know, hindsight 2020, I was probably being a little unfair in my, my youthful exuberance, being like, ah, oh, these guys are clowns, I can do this. Um, but they're also, those clowns are also brilliant, brilliant people who um, were able to come up with a vision and raise money and execute against it and stay focused and passionate about it. And so I am, uh, I'm actually enormously grateful to them. At the same time, <laughs> this one of the best bosses whoever, who I worked with and inspired me, um, and I'm not going to name names. I'm just going to say he was a a loud, hard drinking, incredibly strategically minded Welshman who I worked with when I worked in the UK for the ICF office over there, with whom I uh, the, learned an immense amount about you know presenting yourself to a customer base or to a, to a client or whatever presentation in Singapore or where have you. After having been out drinking most of the night and ending up wrestling in a hotel hallway with the yeah with this this person, after he shoves you aggressively and basically throws down because he thinks it'd be fun to wrestle right now. So probably not doing the story justice at this point because it sort of fade into apocrypha, like just the the hazy notion. But probably what that person taught me is that you can have a ton of fun doing work and working on really interesting problems. Doing nothing has doing has nothing at all to do with those problems. That's interesting. Those anecdotes they stick, and I presume for you as well. They serve as a reminder that at the end of the day, if you're not having fun doing this, then why are you doing it? It is about the human connection, our ability to transmit ideas, our ability to uh, improve the lives of those around us. So uh, I resonate with that story. I wonder if there if there's a particular low point in the last decade that you reflect on, or maybe even when you sit down with other entrepreneurs, it gives you sort of a background of empathy to spend some time with them. And if you'd be willing to share uh, maybe a story or two from that time that helps you now as a CEO. Oh boy. Um, Calling out any specific low point is tough because there are always high points and low points. We have the class, like one of the class low points, like almost running out of money at one point. And being really worried about that, and you know, feeling like you're behind, or you know, honestly, when COVID hit, that actually was a major impact for us because so much of what we do is through the utilities and regulatory bodies, just getting our stuff approved and going, getting off the ground. That slowed us down a ton, and that was that was challenging and painful. If I had to pick, maybe not a specific low point, I think a better way for me to answer the question, or more more useful anyway, would be to relay an anecdote from one of my fellow founders in the Elemental Accelerator program, where one of the great things that program does is they get together all the leadership, the CEOs from all the different companies at a two or three day retreat, sometimes in Hawaii, sometimes in California, like once a year, just to share war stories and best practices and fundraising, all that kind of stuff. It's a super valuable experience, but it's also a lot of it's just letting down your guard and just talking about how you're doing. And one of the anecdotes from, from that. So the first takeaway is find yourself a couple other CEOs, other people you can share stories from the catbird seat. Because quite frankly, no one else inside your company, unless it's a co-founder, it's equal, co-equal with you, is going to have the same perspective as you do as being responsible for the overall company success. You need to have other people to talk to who are in, sitting in that seat who can, you can share those things on the same level. Secondly, and this is so. This is uh, one of the other founders out there, and I don't know if he want me to say his name, so I won't. 
But was just talking about the fact that you like you undulate up and down. You have these cycles where you go up and down and up and down, and you have to get used to those. And those can you can generally trend upward or you can trend downward, and that's where things get really tough because you don't feel like you're making progress. But I think one of the secrets of that is is trying to keep those cycles compressed. So any low point, it harkens back to what I said earlier. Don't you can't let the low points really drag you down because you just you you can crash and burn. The same way you can't get the high points to drag you too far up because you know another low point will be coming. You're going to go up and down and probably will until and through exit, <laughs> whether that's IPO or acquisition or what have you. It doesn't. It, it's never going to stop. So learning how to manage those, you know, the vicissitudes and the ups and downs of these things internally without getting too far off of your own line to power forward is absolutely the most valuable I can think of. That's, that's someone that taught me. I learn as well from folks who have come before us and have left their wisdom in the pages of books. I believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. And I'd love to know if there are, you know, one or two books that for you have had a massive impact on either the way you show up in the world or the way that you approach being a business person? When I was 13, I think, my dad gave me a copy of Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And that's a really good book for telling people how to keep it keep it even. Like life is going to have a lot of vicissitudes. It's going to have like a lot of crazy things are going to happen. And this is my incredibly bad distillation of it. But that stuck with me, honestly, as a as a fundamental grounding point. So that that, that impacted me very deeply. And you know, this is funny because I don't I've read some business books, you know, like think about OKRs and traction and things like that. And you know, they're they're all relatively interesting, but none of them really is like was like, wow, this is transformational for me. The other book that I would say is fundamentally informing of maybe my perspective on uh, Life might be Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, it's uh, you know Douglas Adams, like his you extraordinary grasp of the absurd and the beautiful and the hilarious in our universe is honestly a, a big part of what you know you know informs my own perspective on existence and whether that's in the company or just in general. Like the world's pretty absurd in a lot of ways, and being able to to grasp that is something that's very important to me. So uh, I wish I had something more profound for you, but those are both are both pretty um, generic answers, but they, they're meaningful to me. Yeah, well, I think that uh, both are books that fall in that in the bucket of classics that uh, have timeless truths. And I'm grateful always for the ability to hear, you know, how folks have informed themselves. And I believe that someone listening to this has either been thinking about or has read and wants to go reread one of those two books right now and you're reminding them the the lesson that they that they needed or they wanted to learn. We have a community of voracious readers. Folks reach out all the time and tell me they're still trying to catch up. And you know, we've got <laughs> with on average two books recommended per guest, we've got about eight hundred books. I wager <laughs> we've got about nine hundred books on our list of books that have been recommended at this point. But there are a lot of commonalities. So probably it's less than that. It might be five or six hundred now, but a lot of commonalities that show up. Well Wit, we're gonna have to find a place to put a pin in this. If folks wanted to connect further with you, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Yeah, connector.com and info at connector.com actually goes right to me. Um, I have mm-hmm. direct access to that channel. I sneak in and take take a peek at it quite frequently. 
We'll let you in on the, the little secret here because I haven't, I have intentionally not explicitly spelled this word out, <laughs> Thank but you. it is the word connect and then the acronym that you might, you're all are very familiar with DER. So those of us on the inside recall, we call that connector. I didn't, I want to make sure that you're clear that um, when you go to the website, you're not going to spell connect ER, uh, it's connect DER.com. That is correct. And there's also, we, we're not super social media E, just not sort of not a part of our, of our existence, but we are on LinkedIn. Yeah. I invite you to follow us on LinkedIn. That's, that's the best place to get updates about us. Absolutely. We'll definitely link to that as we always do in the show notes. Well, let's end today as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking or what's in your crystal ball for the coming year? There are a lot of things that I'm going to honestly say I can't foresee. But one thing I think maybe a little bit of a surprise is the uptake rates you're going to get on the Ford F-150 Lightning all electric. Like, I'm not a big truck guy. I did have a Nissan at one point and I did, oh man, I love that truck, but it was a little truck. And I saw that, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't need a Tesla. I want that. I want that truck. I'm not a truck guy. I want that truck. And because it looks so versatile and valuable and they got the price point on it just right. I think, I think they're going to move a lot more product and I think it's going to vault them. Not, it's not going to vault them to the same point as Tesla by any means because Tesla has such a market lead on technology and footprint and other things like that. But it's going to establish the fact that other like American car companies can compete effectively in the EV space. And you're going to see it, it's going to happen faster than you think, is my guess. You know, so you're, it's going to open up the market more aggressively to, to a broader buyer base. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. It may not be a shocking <laughs> prediction, but I, don't, I think I don't, it's going to go faster. That, well, I think a lot of folks are nodding their head, just like I was doing just now. Uh, I have been coveting a Rivian and candidly seeing the F-150 Lightning come out. My question is, why would I pay another twenty, thirty thousand 30000 for a Rivian, a slightly that is smaller the challenge. truck? Rivian's a beautiful vehicle. Like, both gorgeous. of their models are They're so, so nice. Gorgeous. Oh, and I, yeah. I love, I just, just saw the video the other day of the um, mm-hmm. the Rivian uh, camping thing that pops out of the oh, side gosh, and the thing. Like, so how well thought out that is, the beautiful industrial yes. design around it. So yes. I'm going to give a big plug for Rivian just because that's awesome. But yeah, at the same time, I think it's going to be, it will be for a while a luxury premium vehicle that'll like there's plenty of people with money out there are going to buy those but i think as far as mass adoption goes you're going to see more f-150 types out but there too. look you can buy a really nice pull along camper to pull behind your f-150 for the delta <laughs> that is true <laughs> but i don't know the buyer oh, the man. buyer base of the rivian at least the the target market probably aren't the ones who are like yeah give me a ford maybe yeah maybe i, I think uh yeah maybe not but I, I love this answer because, uh, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about the impact the Ford F-150 Lightning is going to have broadly on EV uptake. Coming from, you know, rural South Farm Town that I grew up in, I'm very aware of the alliance and allegiance to heavy-duty vehicles, uh, especially in the farm community and the work community. Um, you know, my dad's a contractor building houses like nobody drives a car, yeah. nobody drives a truck. So I, I concur, and I think that that is a prescient uh, view on the future. And I, uh, you know, Jim Cramer just said, buy Ford for that reason. Yeah. It's like, buy Ford, yeah. you know, so we'll leave on, on that high note to, uh, to at least one of, uh, of the traditional OEMs is getting it right in the sense of understanding what customers want out of an electric vehicle 
and sticking it to Tesla on the uh, on the V to G. That's that's aspect yeah. of it. And V to G, yeah, maybe I think V to H is actually the killer app for the moment. Like vehicle grid, great, but like people want the, if you can buy a truck the and it's going to keep your house yeah. backed up, Back the power it. goes out. Nine kilowatts. It's amazing. Yeah, no, that's a uh, we did just a quick side plug. One one last mm-hmm. little note for us. We're actually working on a plug and play, plug your Ford F-150 into your meter socket and automatic backup. That's no way. That's the, that we are working on next gen right now. We we want to have it to market so, in so you know cool. by Q1 next year. But if we can get it there, we can we can keep a lot more houses backed up a lot more easily. That is so cool. Well, uh, I had a conversation that we by the time this publishes, we will have recently published as well with Rem uh, Ambadapui, uh, one of the co-founders of. EV Connect. Mm-hmm. So vehicle to grid, vehicle to home is, I would say it falls in this category of the crystal ball. A lot of folks think it's like 2025, 2028, 2030. No, they're right now doing vehicle to grid implementation in Indiana. Like this is a real thing that is right around the corner and it's going to change the way we fundamentally think about microgrid and home power and the, syn- the symbiosis, symbiosis of our propulsion systems, our vehicles, yeah. and our resting systems, our homes, the places where we live and the, and the ways that we, you know, transport ourselves. So what a fantastic conversation uh, with Fulton. Some of his friends refer to him as Whitman, which I like as well, is the <laughs> founder of Connect D-E-R. We'll call it Connector. Correct. Uh, and we have been, I have really enjoyed this conversation, learning more about the the future of grid edge in simple devices like the one that you guys are bringing to market thank you wit nico this is super fun thank you great questions um i hope i didn't bore your listeners too much yeah you can all wake up now wake up it's done <laughs> it's done you can come back now <laughs> all right sweet all right take thank it easy you very much brother right well well solar warrior that's the end of today's conversation with wit fulton at least the one that I've recorded. If you are eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from this and frankly, every other discussion on Suncast, along with social media links to reach out to Wit, book recommendations that we just dropped here at the end of the episode, and so much more in the show notes at mysuncast.com. What did you learn today from Wit and from this interesting conversation? Were you surprised to find that a plug-and-play meter socket can help you avoid a main panel upgrade? Were there other things that added to your toolkit and you'd like to share them? I hope you'll do that. Go over to linkedin.com and find the post that we've made of this episode. Share your thoughts. And if you're so kind, share the episode and that post with others in your network because it helps keep the good karma going. Hope you'll join us again next week for a tactical tuesday and a practical long-form conversation just like this one on thursdays where we dive into the life and times of founders ceos startup junkies here in the clean energy sector lastly thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you did you skip the mid-roll if you did you can learn more about the companies that help make this content free over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that is also how you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions, just like yourself twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.